China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS. And this week, I'm joined by Patricia Thornton, an Associate Professor of Chinese Politics at the University of Oxford and the editor of the China Quarterly. Today, we'll be discussing her recent article of Constitutions, Campaigns, and Commissions, A Century of Democratic Centralism Under the CCP. Tia, thanks for joining the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, Jude. I'd like to start out, as I always do, by asking guests for an intellectual biography, but just specifically, what got you interested in Chinese politics? So I guess the short answer to that question is that I grew up in a bedroom community outside of New York City, and I was quite frightfully bored by my suburban existence. I actually do remember receiving a copy of the New York Times Magazine, the Sunday Times Magazine. It was in 1981, and I think the reporter was Fox Butterfield, and he'd written an article called Love and Sex in China. And there was a photograph of a man and a woman, both wearing Mao suits, I should say, walking in a hutong. And he was carrying her handbag, I remember, and they were holding hands and you could just see them from behind. But I was really drawn to that photograph because you couldn't tell that it wasn't very gender specific. And I really liked that. But the other part of the story, the backstory is the reason that I grew up in a bedroom community of New York City is because... I had been born in Brooklyn, but my father was a member of the American Communist Party. And when that was discovered at his workplace, he was a teacher at the time he was fired. We ended up having to move to the suburbs where it was less expensive to live. I, of course, was very young at the time, so I wasn't aware of why it was that we'd lived. But I grew up surrounded by various documents and history books about the Communist Party. So I think I was naturally inclined in that direction. My father also later became the head of his teachers union when he found a job in New Jersey, went out on strike. So I come from a family of fairly committed labor activists. And I think the combination of labor activism and the boredom of suburban life in New Jersey, I think, drove me to my interest in China. Looking across the, the work that you've done, I mean, you range pretty widely. You look at ideology, you look at history, you look at cultural revolution, you look at governance, you look at how the party governs. What right now are the big puzzles or questions that animate your current research? I've been interested for a really long time about the interface between people in positions of power and then people at the social grassroots. And I think that that is, if I could suggest the single dynamic around which I've been chiefly intellectually engaged, it's around that dynamic. Because, of course, the Communist Party in China, as other communist parties across the world, they purport or they attempt to create a radical new opportunity for people to participate in a different kind of politics. And whether or not they succeed is really another matter. And so I've been really interested in thinking about the ways in which the party, but also the Chinese state and earlier parts of PRC history, has either facilitated or then repressed the organization of people at the grounds. And I guess also more broadly, the way in which either grassroots peoples or grassroots organizations interact with the party and the state. I always used to say the party state, but I think actually under Xi Jinping, there's been an increasing gulf between the two, actually. 
focus of our discussion today will be on this article that was recently published in the China Quarterly on democratic centralism, which caught my eye because it made me realize how I had been using that term and reference it and really knew nothing about it or thought I knew a lot about it. And then in reading your article, realized how shallow my understanding of it was. Before we really dig into the, to the meat of the argument, could just at a, at a conceptual level, you describe for us what is democratic centralism at a, at a more abstract level? So democratic centralism is the modus operandi of a Leninist party. The idea behind it is there's a close connection to the grassroots, the supporters of the party, and a dialogue between the leaders of the party and those that they seek to represent. Basically, when Leninist parties seek to seize power, they are actually engaged in a situation of a civil war. And I actually stress this with my students all the time because I think it's not very well understood. But when you are seeking to seize power, you are engaging in either covert or overt action that can be armed insurrection against your fellow countrymen. So in democratic centralism, the Leninist party engages with its supporters, but then once a decision is made of necessity because of the heightened state of tensions in which they operate, the idea is that once the central leadership determines a course of action, the so-called policy line or the party line, then all members of the party must, without question, implement that line with military discipline or iron discipline. And this was a principle that was developed under Lenin and the Soviet Communist Party, and then was transmitted to the early Chinese Communist Party activists, the original 13 people who joined together to form the Communist Party, and were joined, obviously, by Comintern agents. The idea was that the Chinese Communist Party ought to adopt this principle because it was part of the Communist International's platform or program or ways of developing communist parties in other countries. But within the CCP, of course, there was immediately a struggle about whether or not to adopt democratic centralism. First of all, the earliest roots of the Chinese Communist Party was of a scattered collection of mostly activists and different kinds of study groups, either more or less committed to Marxism and Leninism or what they understood to be Marxism and Leninism, but also because a lot of them from their very earliest participation were nationalists and accepting democratic centralism at the outset would have meant acceding to the line set by the Soviet Communist Party. And so early leaders of the Chinese Communist Party, like Chen Duxiu and a few others, were reluctant to do that. So can I ask, how does democratic centralism relate to or stand in tension with other ideas that we've heard about in terms of how decisions are made within the parties, namely interparty democracy or an idea of collective leadership? Technically speaking, democratic centralism would be one way of framing or curtailing safe limits around what we would consider be practices associated with inter-party democracy. It has always been associated or has long been associated with the idea of collective decision making within the party, because, again, democratic centralism within the Chinese Communist Party's doctrine has always been understood as the decisions being made by the central committee, not by a single leader, but by the central committee or by the standing committee of the Politburo more recently. And those decisions have always been collective decisions. So, you know, we're looking most recently at this third history resolution. 
I mean, one of the things that I think is really interesting about it is it does mention democratic centralism four times. It mentions the system of democratic centralism four times. But if we compare that to the first resolution on CCP history in 1945, which also talked about democratic centralism quite a bit, but it talked about the principle of democratic centralism. And also the second resolution on certain questions concerning the history of our party since the founding of the People's Republic, the one in 1981, also mentions democratic centralism, but it mentions it again as a principle. In both the first and the second resolutions, they're looking at the ways in which certain Chinese Communist Party leaders had violated the practice and the principle of democratic centralism Within the context of those discussions, what they're referring to is violating the norms of collective decision making. It is a good moment to ask for a history of how the term has evolved over time or been adapted to fit the prerogatives or exigencies of a given leader. It, it's just interesting to me how it's impossible to understand any term within the Communist Party without looking at it in history. This is, I guess, kind of a Nietzschean concept of a genealogy of morals, because, of course, in the same way that definitions of socialism have evolved over time, this is one, as you, I think, effectively argue in the article, has a level of plasticity in it. So can you kind of run us through Yes, the term has existed within party discourse, you know, for 100 years, but depending on the snapshot in time you're looking at may serve a different purpose or be defined in a specific way. Can you run us through a broad arc of how the term has evolved and any sort of hinge or pivot moments you see where it, where it has become more or less important? So my article looks at the three turning points, basically, in the development of democratic centralism in Chinese Communist Party history in particular. And the first one was the Sixth Party Congress in 1928, which formally adopts democratic centralism as its organizational principle. Now, the term democratic centralism does appear in the Fifth Party Congress's charter, or some people refer to it as the Party Congress's constitution or the party constitution. It was reluctantly agreed to in the Fifth Party Congress or by the Fifth Party Congress, and it was referred to only as a guiding principle, but without identifying it as the organizational principle as a Leninist party. And the reason for that was the concerns over Chen Duxiu's leadership. He was being branded as a Trotskyite, and there were leadership struggles. And he was reluctant, as I said, to accept democratic centralism as the organizing principle of the Chinese Communist Party because he was concerned that would make the party basically the client of the Soviet Communist Party. With Chen Duxiu considerably weakened and then out of the leadership, the Sixth Party Congress then agreed that it would be the organizational principle. But then there was this huge gap because it's 1928. It's just a few years later. We have the end of the First United Front in 1927. And then the Sixth Party Congress is actually held in Moscow. There is this period of ferment and dislocation. So the Seventh Party Congress doesn't occur until 1945 when the parties move to Yan'an and has Mao over that period of time. You have the Long March, you have Mao's rise to power. And basically in the, about 1941, he then begins the process of composing the central core of documents and all the new party members that appeared in Yan'an would study and memorize. And he begins to organize these special classes that later becomes associated with what we call the Yan'an rectification movement. 
But it is in 1945 then, in the run-up to the Seventh Party Congress with the Yan'an rectification movement, that we get to see the party's development of a new kind of democratic centralism. So whereas the initial adoption of democratic centralism as an organizational principle is problematic because of the relationship it would put the CCP in with relationship to the Soviet Communist Party, by the time they decide to adopt democratic centralism as a practice in 1945, the Comintern has now been dissolved. Basically, what happens is it dovetails very nicely in with Mao's efforts in Yan'an to cynicize Marxism-Leninism. And this, again, is a term we're still reading about, right? I mean, when we look at Xi Jinping and his thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics for a new era. So there's been this consistent attempt on the part of the CCP to adopt concepts or practices or these ideas that it finds useful. But they must, of course, then be made to fit local conditions. And so they're cynicizing it. They end up cynicizing democratic centralism in 1945 as this practice of rectification. And the big turning point is that in 1945, when democratic centralism is reintroduced into the Seventh Party Congress, the idea is that even if you disagree with the party's line, you can be re-educated. So there is hope for you to remain within the party. And actually, it's very interesting that Liu Xiaoqi delivers a speech that later becomes part of his How to Be a Good Communist. And he says that Chinese Communist Party members are allowed to hold on to their own opinions. So, you know, you can have a dissenting opinion and it's important that we allow those to remain. And really tragically, and I'm sorry for this sideline story, but it's such a good story. I just have to tell it. When he was captured by the Red Guards many years later in the Cultural Revolution, the Red Guards who tortured him were basically saying, how dare you argue that Communist Party members had the right to retain dissenting opinions? There is only one opinion that matters. That is the opinion of Mao Zedong. But again, In 1945, that would have been seen as a real bastardization of the norm of collective decision making and of democratic centralism as it was understood then. I want to pivot to bring us up to the present. But before we do, I wonder if you can help bridge the gap. You were just mentioning a few minutes earlier about an occurrence of democratic centralism in the 1981 history resolution. Not a watered down way, but in more of a democratic centralism as a principle. Can you describe at a high level where and how democratic centralism emerged or not in party discourse and leadership principles in the kind of Deng, Jiang and Hu era? Does it fade and recede to the background or is it just utilized for a different purpose? This is a great question, Jude, because of course, this is the key turning point. Uh, Deng Xiaoping in 1981, with that second history resolution, really has to perform a very delicate surgery on the Mao legacy, because the Chinese Communist Party, having just emerged from the Cultural Revolution, has its legitimacy very much in question. It's based down these rebels who have claimed that the party is filled with bureaucratic revisionists of the Khrushchev type. The country is now, by the time Deng Xiaoping takes power, has been under a form of military dictatorship, more or less. When Deng Xiaoping decides which parts of Mao's legacy to attempt to reclaim, which he does in the second history resolution, he's very careful to say that 
Mao, when he undertook both the Great Leap Forward, but most importantly, the Cultural Revolution, made a series of errors. And that was due, he says, to his violation of collective leadership and the norm or the principle of democratic centralism. And actually, if we look at all three history resolutions side by side, the one history resolution that mentions democratic centralism the most often is the second one, because Mao is said, I think it's mentioned six times in the second history resolution, uh, always in connection with Mao and Mao's grave errors. In that case, Mao violated the norm of democratic centralism. So coming up out of that, democratic centralism in the early Deng years becomes associated with this practice of collective leadership, that Deng makes this very explicit commitment that this will not happen again. We will have collective leadership and a variety of other institutional changes, of course. But democratic centralism begins at that point to become associated with the normal collective decision making again. We had been talking before we pressed record about an issue that the China Quarterly did on the who when period and this idea of a lost decade. One of the diagnoses of challenges, pathologies, problems within the party at the time that Xi Jinping took over power was that collective leadership might have become too collective at the expense of decisive action on a set of needed, you know, reforms, restructurings, because you essentially had these fiefdoms run by, you know, very powerful individual members of the standing committee. I wanted to use this as a bridge to talking about the Xi Jinping period. Some of this, and again, the debate and discussion still goes on even, you know, nearly 10 years into Xi's power. Was he simply responding to a set of known challenges within the party and there was a a consensus that he needed to take a much firmer line on this, including potentially abridging or filing, you know, the edges off of collective leadership in favor of more centralized decision making? So I, I wanted to use this as a contextual mark to say had a softer definition of democratic centralism that was much more in the dungest tradition of collective leadership essentially had that gone too far and was, as we think about Xi Jinping coming to power, is he in part a reaction to this? What are your thoughts on that? This is a problematic that I've really been thinking about now for perhaps the last two years. It's very clear that in about 2008, the Chinese Communist Party began to shift its direction very dramatically. And so much of what we see by way of both institutional reform, but also the general centralization of power that we associate with Xi Jinping, obviously begins under Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao. What's really, really fascinating is that if we look back at the beginning of the Hu Jintao-Wen Jiabao era, Inter-party democracy was a buzzword. There was a lot of talk about it. It seems to have been traveling the direction of travel, we should say. It just seems to be rather opposite to what we're seeing today. Inter-party democracy in early Hu Jintao, Wen Jiabao period did mean party building, but it also seemed to mean involving a lot more grassroots participation in a wider variety of sort of activities. There was this scientific development thought that he had, but, you know, there wasn't an attempt to build a Hu Jintao thought. There seemed to be a lot more ideological openness. So inter-party democracy seemed to be in the early Hu Jintao, Wen Jiabao era, traveling toward collective decision-making and even, I would say, expanding those practices and norms of collective decision-making. After about 2008, we do see a tightening down. 
And as we were saying before, this is when Xi Jinping is already the designated successor of Hu Jintao. And so we begin to see changes taking place at that point that then get carried through, obviously, after the 18th Party Congress. Can you give us a sense now in the period late 2012 to today, how and where does democratic centralism make something of a comeback? Or I should say, it never really went away, but how does the definition of it change yet again under Xi? Very much, I think, in line with Xi Jinping's other reforms. Democratic centralism has become part of a legal and institutional framework so that one of the things that we're seeing, one of the phenomena that we can note is that there are larger numbers of cadres who are being prosecuted, actually having charges filed against them for violations of democratic centralism. You would not get a cadre cashiered or purged because of just the violation of democratic centralism. But it is a charge that is being tacked on to other forms of misbehavior. It's considered a violation of party norms and party discipline, and it is beginning to appear in legal documents. So in terms of inter-party democracy, Xi Jinping has continued to use the term inter-party democracy, but he's now using the term democratic centralism, I would say, much more than his predecessor did. And it is pretty clear that the overall, again, the overall direction of travel under Xi Jinping is much more in the favor of centralism than it is on the democratic side, which I think we did see under maybe late Jiang Zemin, but certainly under Hu Jintao went to Apal for a period of time. Xi Jinping has, as everyone is already well aware, made centralization one of the real chief institutional reforms on so many different levels across the party and the state. Also, democratic centralism is being expanded now such that even non-party members are certainly held liable if they violate democratic centralist norms. NGOs, non-governmental organizations, social organizations in China since I think 2018 have had to rewrite their charters so that they also reflect that they assent to democratic centralism, even if they don't have party members within those organizations. This may be impossible to answer, but I'm trying to put myself in the position of a cadre somewhere on the hierarchical ladder. How do I come to understand how a term like democratic centralism may be defined over time? So because these definitions can be elastic, and as you say, democratic centralism in the 81 resolution is used to indicate where Mao had violated the spirit of collective leadership. Under Xi Jinping, though, we've got a different spin on the ball. How do you think a lower level cadre understands this? Is this through essentially party convenings and meetings where we kind of discuss and discuss and discuss and discuss, read the speeches of Xi Jinping, etc., to where we can, through osmosis and assimilation, come to understand what the line will be on how a concept like democratic centralism will be interpreted such that I might run the risk of violating it if I'm on the wrong side of that definition. I just find that process very interesting. It must be a difficult process to know all the time where the winds are shifting. In practice, almost certainly most mid-level, lower-level cadres see democratic centralism and upholding democratic centralism as simply a matter of following orders from their superordinate organizing branch or authority. So 
it really is just about following orders most of the time. And here's where it really does become problematic. And maybe I'm anticipating your next question about my conclusion. Tell you what, Tia, I'll ask the next question. How's this? The question I had, had planned to ask, which you so well and anticipated, as if we had been talking about this before we clicked record. At the end of the piece, you write, quote, it remains to be seen if Xi's reliance on democratic centralism to enforce a more fully institutionalized constitutional order will stabilize the regime over the longer term. I sense that's a bit of a rhetorical question, and I can feel some of your answer in it, perhaps in the negative. But I wanted to ask you in this final comment, can you unpack that? Where might Xi's view of democratic centralism and wanting everyone in the system to be looking to the core, where might that rub up against or stress regime stability? If you think about the prospect of being guilty of violating democratic centralism as a cadre, you're going to take the safer route. You are going to listen to the orders of your superiors and you will carry out those orders However, part of your responsibility as a local cadre is, of course, to respond to the needs of the people on the ground. And this is where you get the tension between, say, the Mao era mass line, which I think Xi Jinping does sometimes still try to invoke, and the responsibility of cadres to the people in their so-called whole process democracy model and democratic centralism and the way that it's practiced. So just to give everyone one very clear example, when we think about the outbreak of the coronavirus in Wuhan, you had cadres on the ground in Wuhan who could see that there was a problem that was erupting and spreading and not knowing what to do. We, for example, the Dr. Li Wenliang, he was brought into the Public Security Bureau and he was disciplined for spreading rumors. Now, I'm sure that the Public Security Bureau had been told or recognized this as a case of rumor mongering, and they wanted to squelch the rumors because of the upcoming local party Congress or the people's, uh, the local people's Congress meeting that was getting ready to take place. So in that case, they were following the orders of their immediate superiors, but they were doing so at the expense of what ultimately became the best interests of the people of Wuhan. It would have been better in terms of serving the interests and the needs of the great majority of people in Wuhan, obviously, if they had instead turned to their superiors and said, no, we actually do have a real problem here. And that, of course, is one of the inherent fragilities of a system of democratic centralism. It seems to me that in this line of criticism of the party, which makes sense to me, what we're essentially saying is that discipline sometimes comes with a price. And that would be the case in any organization. When you remove full autonomy to any given actor within an organization, you remove the ability of that actor to make a decision based on local knowledge. We don't often find that to be a problem because we recognize that that comes at the removal of that low level autonomy to a certain degree gives you organizational coherence and the ability to realize broader goals and objectives that if you had purely decentralized decision making, you'd be in anarchy. The instances that you raised with Li Wenliang makes total sense to me on how that specific instance didn't work for the greater end. But if we were in court or in a debate, what if I brought seven examples of where the ability of the party center to reach down and shape the incentives of local level constituents meant that the realization of a policy goal for the broader good of the Chinese people, that wouldn't have been the case in a decentralized model. So I guess what I'm just trying to think through is, 
seems like the specific instances of this over-centralization are not often balanced with what could potentially be a set of benefits or strengths that the system has. And I, I bet if we had a member of the Central Party School here, he would say, yeah, you're totally right in that Li Wenliang example. Let me give you a bunch of other examples where central control allowed us to overcome. And maybe he would point to the period following February, March, when Xi Jinping kicked the system into gear, was able then to mobilize at a central level and contain COVID-19. Doesn't that balance out your initial example? Absolutely. Democratic centralism sounds like a conundrum because you've got two almost completely opposite ideas strung together in a single phrase or in a single concept, like people's democratic dictatorship. Obviously, in thinking about long-term resilience and adaptability within the Chinese Communist Party, the practice of inter-party democracy or democracy more generally needs to be balanced against centralism and the dictates of centralism and this more commando structure. And there are going to be times when the party is going to step over the line in one direction or the other. What's interesting, as we were talking about before, is that in 2008, one of the heads of the Central Party School, actually the think tank at the Central Party School, published a document called Gongjian, which has been translated in various sorts of ways, but in which they were looking forward to pushing not just democratic centralism, but the practice of collective decision making and the whole culture of the Chinese Communist Party much more in that decentralized direction. As we've both said, and I don't think anyone out there has given us a really clear answer to this question yet, but why did everything change in 2008? I believe that that working paper, I'm not exactly sure how it's translated. I've seen it translated as storming the fortress, crucial turning point. That was a high level proposal that must have received a lot of backing within the party under Hu Jintao, Wen Jiabao. But then within a year or two, the entire center of gravity of the Chinese Communist Party changed dramatically. So what that suggests to me is, and has for a long time, is that for some reason that has not yet been made clear to us, there was a sense of crisis that erupted in the Chinese Communist Party around that time and around the need to centralize decision-making because, as the third history resolution says, that there was ineffectiveness, there was good guyism, the party was filled with yes-men. So there was obviously some sense that decision-making and more important policy implementation was not robust enough. So the party had drifted off that line and Xi Jinping is attempting to bring democratic centralism more to the central to correct for those errors. Whether he's overcorrected or not is another matter. Well, that's a great speculative question to end it on. Tia, thank you very much. This has really been a fantastic discussion and recommend that everyone, first of all, subscribe to China Quarterly. If you don't, still recommend go reading Tia's paper on democratic centralism. Thank you very much for your time and, and really excellent conversation. Well, thank you so much, Jude. It's been a real pleasure. If you enjoy this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog.